The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud, where every week a few of our favourite writers read out their articles in the magazine. I'm Cindy Yu. This week we're joined by Svetlana Moronitz, who writes about the blurred lines between patriotism and profiteering in Ukraine. We're also joined by Owen Matthews, who interviews Alexei Navalny's chief of staff. And finally, we'll be joined by Yusinda Maxton Graham, who's trapped in a 15-minute city. First up, it's Svetlana Moronitz. What is the right way to commemorate a war when it is still being fought? Many victories, tragedies and acts of defiance have already been depicted in Ukrainian books, films and art. Popular subjects include the liberation of Snake Island, the defense of the Azovstal plant, the horrors of the Bucha massacre, a woman offering sunflower seeds to an occupying Russian soldier so they can grow when he dies, and the sinking of the Moskva warship. However, it doesn't take much to blur the lines between patriotism and profiteering. Anything with the military logo sells. Military patriotic themes are being used to flog all sorts of products. War symbols have been slapped on socks, flip-flops, vodka labels, designer clothes, sweets and even sex shops. Ukrainians are keen to buy from local sellers who promise to share profits with the army. In Kyiv you can get heroic bucha kombucha with citrus flavor, Azovstal radish seeds and Ukrainian rage, onion bulbs. There are heroes don't die beer and coffee cups bearing the face of an assassinated Ukrainian soldier. One restaurant offers Chernobyevka steaks, named after an occupied village in Kherson Oblast, which Ukrainian forces shelled so much that the joke went, Russians fry there. There seem to be no limits to these attempts to demonstrate patriotism or to profit from it. You don't need such a neighbor, reads a dentistry advert in Lviv, depicting crooked wisdom teeth painted in the colors of the Russian flag. We returned her son, now returned the pleasant smell, says a banner selling deodorant for sweaty feet. Even the most patriotic Ukrainians see all this as excessive. Soldiers complain that such market employs devalue what they are going through. Selling drinks named after Bucha, the previously occupied city where hundreds of massacred bodies were found, is not so far away from using Malay as a brand name. The government is trying to crack down on the profiteering. Last month, a group of Ukrainian MPs submitted a draft law which would control commercial advertising and marketing using four-time themes. If the law passes through Verkhovna Rada, Ukraine's parliament, the use of war-related branding including any references to massacres, hostilities, names of weapons and military slogans, including glory to Ukraine, would be banned. No penalty has yet been agreed and exceptions will be made for the promotion of films or books about the invasion. The problem with the bill is that many businesses are genuinely motivated by helping the war effort. Tens of millions of pounds have already been donated to the army from Ukraine's private sector. Yes, some of the advertising might be coarse. 
Laser hair removal to threaten the army, shrikes. One ad, the idea being that 10% of the proceeds go to soldiers and volunteers. But if the government goes ahead and sets these restrictions on companies, their bottom lines may be affected and so therefore will their contributions to the war effort. A possible compromise could be to require businesses to report the profits they donate to the army, given that it's currently anyone's guess which companies stick to their donation pledges. Or perhaps there could be a system of licensing so that those who wish to use patriotic slogans must seek approval, though whether a wartime government would have time for such relative trivialities is another question. Where also to draw the line? Boxer shorts are on sale which feature the coat of arms of Ukraine, the trident of Volodymyr the Great, over the crouch. They are tasteless, certainly, but not explicitly to do with the war. Moreover, Ukraine's law already forbids using or imitating the trident and the state flag in advertising, but nobody seems to care about it now. So even if new restrictions are to be implemented, the patriotic branding is unlikely to end. Ukrainian society is divided between those fighting the war in the trenches and those who are feeling guilty for not doing so. Those living in the relative peace provided by the defenders understandably want to do what they can to help, even if it's something small like buying things from companies that donate to the front line. If the bill does become law, it probably won't stop Ukrainians continuing to shop for victory. That was Svetlana Moronets. And now, Owen Matthews. Ever since the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was arrested and imprisoned on trumped-up charges in January 2021, Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, or Febrika, has fought tirelessly to keep it, its leader in the public eye and to continue his work exposing the corruption of the regime. Just under 130 million people viewed the Febrika's YouTube video, Putin's Palace, which detailed the outrageous luxury of a seaside palace built by Russia's leader and the complex web of offshore schemes that financed it. The documentary Navalny, which details the opposition leader's investigation into his own near-fatal poisoning by a team of FSB assassins in Tomsk in August 2020, won the Best Documentary Award at this year's Oscars. My husband is in prison for telling the truth, Navalny's wife, Yulia, told the Academy Awards audience. I dream of the day that he and Russia will be free. Was it a mistake for Navalny to return to Moscow from Berlin, where he was being treated for Novichok poisoning, to face an imprisonment that has proved monstrously cruel? You can only talk about mistakes if there had been any other options, says Leonid Volkov. Navalny's chief of staff, who until his recent resignation also served as Febrika's chairman. But neither do I nor anyone around Navalny ever thought there could be any other course of action. There was no discussion. Prison authorities recently announced that Navalny would be punished with a twelfth spell in solitary confinement for improperly greeting an officer. Despite the tortuous conditions Navalny is in, Volkov insists that he remains as cheerful and well as one can under those circumstances. But our most serious worry is that in the process of trying to break him psychologically, the prison authorities, directed by the Kremlin, could undermine his health. Volkov, an IT specialist by training, served as a local councillor in the liberal enclave of Ekaterinburg in the Urals during the brief political thaw under Dmitry Medvedev, Vladimir Putin's stand-in as president between 2008 and 2012. 
It was a nationwide wave of protests in the winter of 2011 to 12 that followed Putin's return to power for a third term that propelled Navalny and his Verbakar to international prominence and established him in the eyes of the Kremlin as a major irritant, if not a serious challenger to Putin's power. In 2013, Volkov ran Navalny's campaign for mayor of Moscow, winning an official 27.2% of the vote, which Volkov insists was really closer to 35%. And in 2018, he was Navalny's chief of staff for a presidential campaign, which was scuppered when the Kremlin refused to register Navalny as a candidate. With national politics close to them, the Navalny team came up with the Smart Voting Initiative, a system which allowed anti-Kremlin voters in local elections to focus their ballots only on opposition candidates likely to win. The system was so effective that it threatened to depose the Kremlin-backed United Russia Party from power in several major Siberian cities, including Tomsk, where Navalny was campaigning when he was poisoned. We have experience of campaigning in many ordinary suburbs in ordinary Russian towns and winning against United Russia, even with all their administrative resources, says Volkov, speaking for Vilnius, Lithuania. I have no doubts that if we were allowed to compete fairly in real elections, Navalny is ready to fight and win. But while more than 20 million Russians regularly follow the Febekar's videos, there is still a major leap to winning a majority of the 73.6 million votes cast in the 2018 elections. And the elephant in the room is, of course, the war in Ukraine, which has seen a wholesale shutdown of Russia's last remaining independent media and a deluge of patriotic propaganda that claims that Putin is protecting Russia from Western attack. The war, and especially mobilization, destroyed the political contract between Putin and the majority of his people, which allowed them not to be interested in politics in exchange for decent living standards, says Volkov. Now, millions of people who for years were not interested became interested, began to ask questions and became more politically active. But in the aftermath of the war, up to a million of Navalny's most passionate supporters, mainly from the urban middle classes, have fled the country to avoid political repression or conscription. We have tens of millions of supporters who remain, counters Volkov, whose own family have lived in Europe since 2019. If Navalny was right to return to Russia, were the Febekar team and a million other opponents of the Kremlin wrong to leave? I don't believe I have the right to judge anyone's decision, just to respect it, says Volkov. As for the Febekar, a decision was made to preserve our political apparatus outside Russia. We could not campaign from inside a jail cell. The Febekar's latest video turned its fire on two people whom most Russians see as liberal opposition members, the editor-in-chief of the Echo Moskvi radio station, Alexei Venediktov, and the socialite TV presenter and Putin's goddaughter, Ksenia Sabchak, who stood as a liberal candidate against Putin in the 2018 elections. Navalny's team, using official open-source accounting information, revealed that tens of millions of dollars had been paid to Venediktov and to Sobchak by the Moscow mayor, Sergei Sabyanin, for the publication of special supplements in Venediktov's magazine and for consulting services from Sobchak. She denies any wrongdoing. In a lacerating YouTube video, Fabakar claimed that these payments were in fact bribes from the state for election-fixing. Venediktov said that he actually lost money on the project and accused Febekar of publishing only the income side of his accounts. Yet Vindictive's radio station was closed by the authorities at the beginning of the war, and in October he was declared a foreign agent by the Kremlin. To many opposition-minded Russians, it looked like Navalny was turning on his own. 
There is no sense in which these people are our own, protests Volkov. The Kremlin system is rather complicated. Collaborating with one part does not protect you from reprisal from another. Venediktov, a past master of political jiu-jitsu, countered by publishing a 2022 letter signed by Volkov in the name of the Febakar to Josep Borrell, the EU foreign affairs chief, in which he called for Brussels to relax sanctions on the London-based Russian businessmen Mikhail Friedman, Pyotr Ivan and two of their business partners. Volkov's support was important because many Russians have been placed on EU and US sanctions list after being identified as regime insiders by Navalny's Febeka. Volkov resigned as chairman of the Febeka and admits that the letter had been a mistake, but refuses to comment on why he had written it in the first place. All he says is that there are mistakes in the EU and US's sanctions policy, the system is not transparent. Does Volkov think that the Kremlin is happy that his opponents have turned on each other? Don't use that term each other, he protests. There is no political or personal closeness between us. This week, after the murder of military blogger Vladlen Tatarsky in a St. Petersburg cafe, Russia's anti-terrorism committee accused persons cooperating with Navalny's Febeka of being behind the killing in cooperation with the Ukrainians. That is likely to herald a fresh wave of domestic repression against the Febeka's few remaining supporters in Russia. But while the main liberal opposition to Putin remains in jail, in exile or squabbling among themselves, Volkov and Navalny's dream of a Russia without Putin remains a distant prospect. That was Owen Matthews. And finally, Ascender Maxstone Graham. It's a nasty moment when you receive a letter informing you that a fortnight ago, at a specific number of minutes past an hour, your car was photographed turning into a side road, which at the time you had no idea you weren't allowed to turn into. You vaguely recall the junction. There was no no-entry sign, just a torrent of words, except, through, motor vehicles, access, that you didn't have time to read. That outing will now be forever sullied in your memory by the £65 fine. Protesting, but the satnav told me to do it, is as ineffectual, legally speaking, as Adam bleating to God that the woman gave me fruit from the tree and I did eat. The punishment is still enforced. The lesson you learn from Britain's new low-traffic neighbourhoods, LTNs, is drive outside your own local district to a place where you don't know the weird local rules and you'll inevitably make some small mistake and be forced to donate a chunk of money to another borough. This is not just a London and Oxford problem. LTNs are being planned for Hereford, Brighton, Bath, St Andrews, Newcastle, Portsmouth and Leith, among many other towns and cities. New road-blocking planters were set on fire in Rochdale last week by angry locals. Though against civil disobedience, I couldn't stifle a guilty sense of delight at seeing those green but aggressive planters in flames. I'm not sure which is more loathsome. The planters and bollards method, which makes it physically impossible to drive through the new blockages and slows emergency ambulances down, or the cameras and confusing signs method, which, though helping ambulances, rakes in fines from inadvertent rule breakers. Both methods are highly interfering to us all trying to live our lives and are imposed on us by money-hungry zealots. Unless we protest about them and implore ministers to put a halt to the road-blocking agenda unleashed by Andrew Gilligan and Boris Johnson in their pandemic-induced active travel frenzy, and mostly now implemented by Labour-controlled councils who love them for the money they raise, these LTN schemes, or clean air neighbourhood schemes, or people-friendly street schemes, will ground us. They will put off anyone but the young and fit from going out, making us too scared to drive across town to visit aged relatives. 
and they will turn our residential districts into sad, eerily silent little fortresses edged with polluting traffic jams and closed-down shops. The 15-minute city won't be much use when the local small businesses have had to close down for lack of custom. Most businesses cannot survive just on the clientele that can walk or cycle to them in 15 minutes. I live in one of the worst offending boroughs when it comes to the signs and cameras method. Labour, controlled, Hammersmith and Fulham. If anyone from outside the borough drives over Putney Bridge towards central London, they are no longer allowed to turn right to get to Wandsworth Bridge Road or Wandsworth Bridge. All the side routes are blocked to outsiders. Yellow signs have been put up saying, to get to Wandsworth, turn round and go back over Putney Bridge. 20 businesses have closed down on Wandsworth Bridge Road since the pandemic and this new outsider-repelling scheme is exacerbating the hardships for those trying to recover. The long-established butcher Randalls lost 40% of its income in the first month of the scheme, implemented in February. Lots of its clientele from the three neighbouring boroughs, all under a mile away, have given up coming, so bad is the traffic, so arcane the rules. Our local cafe Halley's, which employs 14 members of staff, has gone from making a healthy profit to losing £10,000 per month. Use a bike or the tube if you want to go to another borough, cycling obsessives and car haters might say. Well, I enjoy cycling and the underground as much as anyone and care about the planet, but I'm fit and dependent-free. What about the elderly? What about a mother of three children under five who needs to get the five-year-old to school on a rainy morning? What about a delivery driver under time pressure, stuck in gridlock on the main road? And in my borough, public transport seems to be getting worse, not better. Traffic levels and pollution levels are being monitored while schemes like these are under consultation, but you can bet they'll come up with the data they want, telling us that bus journeys are taking no longer than they used to and that air quality is improving. But as young Jonah said on the radio call-in in Sleepless in Seattle when asked how he knew his father had insomnia, I'll live here, Dad. I live here. I know from daily experience that there's a mile-long traffic jam belching out exhaust fumes all day on surrounding residential main roads. The peace and quiet of Britain's newly trafficless residential enclaves is not worth it for the misery and frustration inflicted round the edges. As Richard Aldwinkle, co-founder of One Dulwich, which protests against Dulwich's new road closure schemes imposed by Southwark Borough Council, said to me, these schemes cause the three Ds, displacing traffic onto boundary roads, dividing communities and discriminating against the elderly and disabled. Dulwich, once approachable and friendly, but now strangled on all sides by gridlock, has, like Fulham, become so hard to get into that thousands don't bother to try, and businesses are suffering. East Dulwich, thanks to the closing of a junction, is in effect cut off from West Dulwich for drivers. This is the new Corridor Britain, in which all traffic is gradually being forced into a few clogged arteries. If, on such a corridor, you happen to spot a nice-looking butcher, greengrocer or cafe, the risk of turning into a side road to park is too great. Once you've had your first fine, why would you? This is exactly the situation that councils seem to want. Passers through are the new pariahs. What were once ten-minute journeys now take three-quarters of an hour. The worse the traffic, the better the councils like it, hoping we'll soon give up driving altogether. But some people need their cars, and these zealots too will one day be old, infirm, lonely and confined to their homes. That was Isenda Maxim Graham. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. If you enjoyed this episode, why not pick up this week's Easter issue to read more articles from The Spectator? This week we even have an article from the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Do join us again next week. <laughs>